This is Guns and Butter. And so there we, we've seen very major shifts taking place within the Middle East and even in the broader Asian region, where uh, countries are aligning with China and Russia and Iran to the detriment of their links with the United States and NATO, where Turkey is in a transitional period of asserting itself as a regional power. And all of this is upsetting historic geopolitical alignments which were established since the end of World War II and it's evolved right through the neocons. But we're, we're in a very different world today. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Michelle Chosodovsky. Today's show, The Broader Global Crisis. Michelle Chosodovsky is an economist and the founder, director, and editor of the Center for Research on Globalization, based in Montreal, Quebec. He is the author of 11 books, including The Globalization of Poverty and the New World Order, War and Globalization, The Truth Behind September 11th, America's War on Terrorism, and The Globalization of War, America's Long War Against Humanity. Today we concentrate on the global crisis, North Korea, Qatar, Iran, Turkey, Russia, China, Venezuela, Cuba, and a major geopolitical shift taking place in Pakistan and India. Michel Chosodovsky, welcome. Delighted to be on, on Guns and Butter. You made a recent trip to South Korea. With all of the saber-rattling by the U.S. and North Korea, what did you learn about the Korean situation when you were there? To follow current events on Twitter and in the news, it reads like a reality TV show. Well, we, maybe we should ask uh, President Trump whether this is a reality TV show or whether he really means to press the button. Uh, but I, I should clarify a number of things. It is not Donald Trump that decides on the use of nuclear weapons. Why? Um, and people are very confused in this regard. In 2001, under what is called the Nuclear Posture Review, the U.S. nuclear doctrine was overhauled, redefined, and a certain category of nuclear weapons, which were called tactical nuclear weapons or mini-nukes, were reclassified uh, as conventional weapons. In other words, they could be used alongside other conventional weapons. And these mini-nukes, uh, in fact, are not different from the strategic nuclear bombs of the Cold War era. They have some different characteristics. They have a lesser yield, but in fact, they go from one-third to six times the Hiroshima bomb, and I think there's some that are even, even more dangerous than that. But the, the very act of redefining these uh, nuclear bombs as conventional weapons and giving them a label and saying, quote-unquote, they're harmless to the surrounding civilian population means that Donald Trump doesn't decide 
It's a three-star general in the war theater, in the conventional war theater, who can, I'm not saying he will, but who can actually uh, decide to use a tactical nuclear weapon, uh, most probably will coordinate with strategic command headquarters in Nebraska, but um, it is not for Trump to actually intervene. It's a Pentagon decision. And um, this uh, was the object of a fair amount of debate in the Senate, including our Senator Dianne Feinstein, a Democrat of California. And um, at the time, that was actually, uh, it was subsequent to the, to the actual vote in 2002-2003. But and then Senator Edward Kennedy at the time also made the point and said, you are, in fact, blurring the relationship, the relationship between weapons of mass destruction and conventional weapons. And he was firmly opposed to, to this redefinition of, of nuclear bombs. And then what they introduced was the notion of the, and this is a military concept, the toolbox. Okay? Now, the toolbox is a box from which the military can choose, or the, the, the three-star general can go in and, and, and choose what he wants. And so that these mini-nukes, uh, which are bunker buster bombs or nuclear warheads, were recategorized by the U.S. Senate, and they become bona fide conventional weapons. And we don't need to go and ask Donald Trump whether we can use them or not. Uh, Mad Dog uh, Mattis will probably get the last word on that. And that's the guy who actually uh, uh, bombed the hell out of Fallujah during the Iraq War. Now, what I did learn from my trip to South Korea, there's a new president. Uh, the previous president was impeached. We hope there's a freeing of political prisoners. The new president is in favor of dialogue with the North. And this was crucial to our debate in South Korea. South Korea has a defense cooperation agreement, which in time of war puts the entire South Korean armed forces under the command of a three-star general appointed by the Pentagon. And since the armistice agreement of 1953 was never, never repealed by a peace agreement, that means that the United States is in a state of war against North Korea since 1950. They, there was a truce, but there was never a peace agreement. Now, people in America don't know, talking about security and so on, that up to 30% of the population of North Korea were killed as a result of U.S. bombings. More than 90% of cities were destroyed. Pyongyang was totally destroyed. And then we have to ask ourselves, and it's very important in assessing U.S. war plans in relation to North Korea, does a country which lost 30% of its population during a U.S.-led war in the 1950s constitute a threat to the United States of America? Or does the United States of America constitute a threat to the security of North Korea. There's not a single family who has not lost a loved one during that war. And then put yourself in the shoes of the North Koreans. What would happen, let's say, if, if a foreign country had bombed 
major cities, New York, uh, Washington, Chicago, right to the, to the ground, as they did in, in North Korea, and that uh, there were close to 100 million people killed, one-third of the, of the U.S. population. That is what happened. And it, it's not a question of accepting or denying that interpretation. The, the U.S. military actually acknowledged that they killed they said, General Curtis LeMay, we must have killed uh, 20%. He said 20% of the population of that country and destroyed every single city. Okay? The exact quote is there. So that is what we're dealing with. We're dealing with a country which has been threatened for the last 67 years. We're dealing with a country which uh, lost uh, 30% of its population during the Korean War, which was totally destroyed, and the media is turning realities totally upside down and presenting uh, North Korea as, as the aggressor because it has developed nuclear weapons as a means of deterrence. Whether that is something we support or not, I personally don't support it, but, uh, but it, it was a choice that they made uh, following almost persistent nuclear threats by the United States starting in 1950, the threat of nuclear war. So they've been living every single year. They run war games with uh, scenarios of nuclear weapon attacks against North Korea. And this, of course, has created a response on the part of North Korea in developing their own nuclear arsenal. In May 1951, after President Truman had relieved him of his command, General MacArthur testified to Congress that, quote, the war in Korea has already almost destroyed that nation of 20 million people. I have never seen such devastation. I have seen, I guess, as much blood and disaster as any living man and it just curdled my stomach the last time I was there. After I looked at that wreckage and those thousands of women and children and everything, I vomited. If you go on indefinitely, you are perpetrating slaughter such as I have never heard of in the history of mankind. That from General MacArthur. Now, isn't it also true that they devastated South Korea? Well, they also devastated parts of South Korea, and there was a, was a program of targeted assassinations in South Korea. And, and those war crimes actually, they were not an object of discussion within South Korea. And then just about, I think it was about 10 years ago, they opened the dossier and, and the, the victims, the families of, of the victims started to speak out. It was something they couldn't do during the, during the military governments that they had. But you see, the situation now in South Korea is that if we look at U.S. strategies, which is really to make other countries do the war for them, so to speak, like they're doing in, in Yemen, they, they mobilize Saudi Arabia to go and bomb Yemen. But with their joint defense agreement, they could trigger a war between North and South. Um, so that agreement has to be rescinded. That was the object, actually, that was the object of our discussion in South Korea. But at the same time now, the South Korean president says we're going to have dialogue. But the, the question is, is the issue of sanity within this reality TV type of environment. There's a certain sanity within South Korea 
as far as policymakers are concerned, they, they have said, we want to talk to the North Koreans. Uh, after the impeachment of the daughter of, of General Park, Mrs. Park, there was the candlelight movement, and they want to enter into dialogue. Now, the United States is trying to block them from initiating a dialogue with, with the North. Um, so if you ask what is the outcome of, of, this, of these uh, fine fury statements by, by uh, President Trump, I, I would say we're at the crossroads of, of perhaps the most serious crisis in modern history because uh, a nuclear attack on, on North Korea or even a conventional attack on North Korea would, would, would escalate. And bear in mind, Trump doesn't have too much of a knowledge of geography. Um, North Korea has borders with Russia and China and South Korea and is in almost within swimming distance of Japan. So there you are. You've got these five countries uh, there, um, Japan, North Korea, South Korea, China, and Russia. And um, it, it is very unlikely that the Russians and the Chinese would let things happen at their doorstep. Um, and there's a lot of behind-the-scenes negotiations at, at, at this time. But we're dealing with people who, first of all, don't understand the impacts of nuclear weapons. And I, I don't blame them for that, because if they read the military manuals, they'll say that tactical nuclear weapons are harmless to civilians. And I should say that the tactical nuclear weapon, just to show how absurd it is, had been contemplated during the, during the Clinton administration against Libya. Okay? It was the first uh, initiative in that regard. And then, then we had another situation where analysts said we should use nuclear weapons against Saddam Hussein, okay? tactical nuclear weapons against Saddam Hussein. Uh, so that the, the whole discussion and, and, and debate on nuclear weapons is, is ultimately to give them a human face, say these are peacekeeping bombs, we can go after Gaddafi or Saddam Hussein in his bunker buster, drop a bunker buster bomb with a nuclear warhead and so on and so forth. And ultimately, we, uh, we have a president who, who may read these briefs, but at the same time, he doesn't have the, the critical mindset to understand that those briefs are fabricated. Okay? So we're, we're feeding fake news to, to the United States uh, president. It's, it's what I would call internal propaganda. It is to create a consensus uh, in favor of nuclear war within the realm of decision makers. And it, it, it transcends, it's, it's within the State Department, it's in the U.S. Congress, and so on and so forth. And uh, we've seen this unfolding. They have seminars for top officials and so on. So that the, the lies to the public are one thing, but there are lies within the decision-making apparatus which ultimately incite those decision-makers to conform to a consensus. And the consensus which is building up now, uh, apart from the Russiagate thing, is that, as far as nuclear weapons are concerned, is that they are just one among many other forms of military intervention.
and that we can now, uh, and that's where the, the doctrine of preemptive warfare came in. It's not only preemptive warfare in conventional terms, it's preemptive warfare using first strike nuclear weapon for defensive purposes, which is a very skewed type of argument. We're going to defend ourselves by, by blowing up uh, a country which allegedly threatens us. So far, North Korea is not threatening the United States. They've only said that they would target one of their ICBMs and land uh, a bomb close to Guam, but within at least 20 or 30 miles of, of Guam in the ocean. That's the only thing they've said. They're not threatening the United States. They're saying, well, if you threaten us and you, you want to, to attack us, we have the ability to respond. And I think that that is, uh, is something which people have to take into account. I'm speaking with economist and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show, The Broader Global Crisis. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. First of all, the United States has refused to sign a peace treaty, but they have also refused to acknowledge the reunification of North and South Korea. And the reason that they have blocked the reunification is that if that reunification were to occur, Korea, a unified Korea, would constitute a regional power which would be sovereign in relation to the United States of America. Now, there is, within South Korea, there's a strong movement towards reunification. Uh, there's also a movement against the departure of U.S. troops. There's also a movement against rescinding the Joint Defense Cooperation Agreement, which puts really all South Korean troops under, under U.S. command in case of war. But by definition, they're at war since 1950 because there was never a peace agreement. But I think ultimately uh, the United States foreign policy is to ensure that independent countries do not become competing powers or competing regional powers. And if you combine the high-tech industries of South Korea in quite a number of areas, uh, automotive, uh, electronics, and so on. It's a highly developed industrial, high-tech economy, and with uh, export capabilities, of course, Korean cars all over the place. And you combine that with the science and technology and military technologies of North Korea, and a larger, a substantially larger population, there what you will have is a regional power which will uh, eventually contribute to upsetting the the geopolitical balance within within Northeast Asia to the detriment of the United States. Uh, it may also at the same time change the relationship between Japan and the United States. And that those two countries also have a joint military cooperation agreement. So I think uh, ultimately also what Washington wants is to prevent the reunification of the two Koreas because this would create a competing world power with military capabilities, high-tech industry, 
and so on, which would challenge the hegemony of the United States in Northeast Asia. Three Gulf states, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, and Bahrain, and Egypt, cut ties with Qatar and imposed a land, sea, and air blockade that is now entering its third month. You've recently returned from a trip to Qatar. What did you learn there of the ongoing crisis? How and why did the political shift against Qatar begin? Well, there's a certain complexity there, but but there's one important dimension, which is the fact that Qatar has a long-standing relationship with Iran in the area of natural gas. And the Persian Gulf has, between the two countries, Iran on one side, Qatar on the other, those reserves are the largest reserves of natural gas worldwide. They're they're sitting on a gold mine. And the fact of the matter is that while Qatar has links with a lot of oil companies, Western oil companies, uh, those gas fields are jointly owned by Iran and Qatar in an agreement between the respective governments. And it's not simply a question of saying this part belongs to me and that part belongs to you. It's a joint ownership and joint cooperation. So that, I think, is fundamental. In turn, uh, Qatar has established links with, with Russia uh, in the gas uh, industry. It also invested indirectly in one of Russia's uh, energy conglomerates, Rosneft. There are lots of uh, Russians and Chinese in the oil industry. And there are, of course, pipelines. Now, when you look at, at strategic pipelines for, for natural gas, a lot of that natural gas actually is exported by tanker, but they're now developing the gas pipelines. And since Saudi Arabia has come in and closed the border, um, what happened is there's been a sort of a major realignment. They closed the border. All the ground trade which was coming into the country came through Saudi Arabia and the Emirates. And so that Qatar all of a sudden is isolated Uh, transformed de facto into an island rather than a peninsula. And who comes to the rescue? Iran, with large shipments of of basic food commodities, which previously came through Saudi Arabia. And also Turkey is involved. Turkey is also helping them. Now, it just so happens that with the closure of the border with with Saudi Arabia, um, Qatar is now contemplating to export its natural gas through Iran and through Turkey. And that is occurring as opposed to the the pipeline route which um, united uh, Qatar with Saudi Arabia, which goes through Qatar, through Saudi Arabia, into Jordan, and then into the Mediterranean. Okay, So now the the pipeline routes have changed, the geopolitics have have shifted, and uh, at the same time, there's some very fundamental contradictions because whereas um, Qatar now is aligned with, with enemies of, of the United States of America, <laughs> namely Iran, but also China and Russia, um, 
the United States has its largest military base in Qatar. It's an Air Force base. Uh, and if, if I'm not mistaken, it's also the headquarters of Central Command. So that the U.S. is an ally of Saudi Arabia. It has a, a major military facility in Qatar. But the country is allied with, with Iran as far as it, its energy resources are concerned. Um, and then in turn, more recently, Turkey has come in and want, wants to have its own military base in Qatar. So this is leading to a sort of a geopolitical uh, crisis. Um, Turkey is present in Qatar. Uh, Iran is present. The United States have a military base. Saudi Arabia has cut its borders. The pipeline routes have been redirected. And then uh, the question is, how is this going to evolve? How is it going to evolve with a U.S. military facility in a country which has cleavages with enemies of America, essentially Iran and then Russia and China, all of which are in the gas industry, uh, with China being a major importer, there's still, of course, Western companies are there. They, they have contracts in the oil and gas industry. That's nothing new. But the encroachment of Iran uh, is absolutely fundamental. Now, there's another uh, important shift which is taking place. It's a geopolitical shift. It's the role of Turkey, and it's the relationship between Turkey uh, and uh, the United States on the one hand, and Turkey and its relationship to Iran and, and Russia. And that has to do with uh, northern Syria, where the United States is pushing for the creation of, of a Kurdistan proxy state or, or protectorate that's in northern Syria, which would be annexed, which would secede from, from Syria. Uh, this fighting is still ongoing. And the project is, uh, is eventually to integrate that with the Kurdistan region of Iraq. Now, that's a U.S. project. Turkey has another project because, of course, they have been fighting the Kurdish project uh, for, you know, for generations. But the notion, the project that the United States would, would establish uh, a Kurdistan region was already envisaged even back in the late 90s. Uh, where portions of uh, Iraq and Syria, as well as Turkey, would form the new Kurdistan region. And now, as a result of that, there's been a sort of a clash between, between Turkey and the United States to the extent that Turkey has recently acquired the S-300 air defense system from Russia. Now, how does that uh, fit in when we know, first of all, that Turkey is a heavyweight in NATO, and when we know that the air defense system of NATO member countries is under NATO standards and it's using Western and U.S. technology and not the technology of the Russian Federation. So there you have a, you have a member of NATO, heavyweight of NATO, which has purchased its air defense system from Russia, which is which is on the U.S. NATO hit list and uh, which is also uh, collaborating with Iran with regard to pipeline routes, you know, from the Iranian Persian Gulf 
coast, but also from Qatar, Iran, Turkey, Turkey, Mediterranean. So there we are. We have a very complex uh, situation evolving. And I, I wouldn't exclude the possibility that at some future date there would be some kind of military, either a military intervention or, which is more likely, some kind of regime change taking place in Qatar, of which the intent would be to destabilize the country's relationship with Iran primarily, but also with, with Russia and China. Qatar is not a big country. It's a population of 2.2 million. Most of that population are made up of foreign workers. And uh, the military intervention by EG, by Saudi Arabia, is not, not something which can be excluded. But it's a very, very unstable situation, and it marks some major realignments, you know, on the Middle East chessboard. I'm speaking with economist and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show, The Broader Global Crisis. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. And then in turn, if we look at broader relations between Iran, let's say Iran, Pakistan, India, uh, very recently, that was about a month and a half ago, I believe in late June, uh, India and Pakistan join the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, and in fact, on the same day, and uh, we know that the the Shanghai Cooperation Organization is essentially an alliance between Moscow and Beijing with several former Soviet uh, republics, uh, observer members. But, but it, 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 it signifies something which is pretty fundamental. Well, Pakistan is already aligned with China. And that's very significant because Pakistan was a staunch ally of, of the United States. But economically speaking, it is, it is uh, aligned with with uh, with China and India, the situation with regard to India is not clear. But what was very significant at that meeting of the SCO is that the SCO demanded that full members of of the SCO would resolve their border differences in a peaceful fashion, uh, and that was addressed to Pakistan and. Uh, India. And what I, I, I think is, is certainly possible is that this creates a new environment. It's not, it's not the old-fashioned uh, situation of Pakistan and India uh, fighting for, for territories in, you know, in Kashmir, which is essentially the legacy of the British colonial apparatus. And now there, there's, a, there's a new era of U.S.-Pakistan relations you know, that conflict, Pak-India conflict, has been nurtured by Washington since the Cold War era. Uh, and now you have a situation where, uh, where these two countries, Pakistan and India, are members of essentially an alliance of two competing superpowers, namely uh, China and Russia. And, and despite the fact that the Shanghai Cooperation Agreement has been presented as a Eurasian economic, political, and mutual security organization uh, doesn't exclude the fact 
that it is also tacitly a military alliance and it serves uh, geopolitical and strategic uh, interests. It's, it's, so to speak, a counterweight to U.S.-NATO. And so there we, we've seen uh, very major shifts taking place within the Middle East and even in the broader Asian region where uh, countries are aligning with China and Russia and Iran to the detriment of their, their links with the United States and NATO, where Turkey is in a transitional period of asserting itself as a regional power, okay, the, the Ottoman project of, of President Erdogan. And uh, all of this is upsetting historic geopolitical alignments, which were established, let's say, uh, since the end of World War II, uh, it's referred to the Truman Doctrine, George Keenan, and it's evolved right through the neocons. But we're, we're in a very different world today. But at the same time, we're in an extremely dangerous crossroads, largely because of the reality TV nature of U.S. foreign policy. With regard to the blockade of Qatar, isn't a blockade considered an act of war? Turkey and Qatar completed Iron Shield War Games, or joint military exercises, in Doha. This seems very serious to me. Well, it, it certainly is, um, because um, it points to shifting alliances, what we might call cross-cutting coalitions. We are in, a, in, that, in that era of cross-cutting coalitions. Uh, Qatar and Turkey have established alliance now against the United States and Saudi Arabia, okay? But at the same time, well, maybe not explicitly or officially, but at the same time, both Turkey is, is an ally of the United States and Qatar has, has the largest military base in the Middle East, right, sitting, uh, you know, within 100 kilometers of Doha. So it's, it's a very contradictory relationship. I'm, I'm referring back to the, the map of the new uh, Middle East, which was, uh, was established by, uh, by a member of the U.S. military. It was meant for academic purposes, but it shows, and that, that map goes back to the, to the 1990s, it shows a situation where part of Turkey has been annexed by uh, what, the, you know, what the map called Free Kurdistan. It's a Pentagon map or, or military academy map. And Free Kurdistan in, includes part of uh, northern Iraq and then, and then part of Syria. And then you have, uh, you have another situation where there's Free Baluchistan. And Baluchistan is, is part of, um, of Iran and part of Pakistan and, and so on. So that they've, they've certainly been redrawing the map. But at the same time, these various countries of the Middle East and beyond have been very astutely establishing bilateral agreements and alliances. The Russians have been extremely sophisticated in that regard. Uh, uh, they, they establish bilateral relations with every single ally of the United States, okay? So they have, a, they have a, an alliance now with Turkey, which is a very significant alliance. And that was after, if we recall, uh, 
earlier on in, in the war in Syria when Turkey started blowing up uh, Russian planes. But now there's a tacit alliance between Turkey and Russia, which includes the delivery of the S-300 air defense system to Turkey. And then there's a rapprochement between Turkey and Iran. Of course, Turkey and Iran were, were members of the peace conferences in Astana. And we know that Turkey and Iran historically hate each other's guts. But nonetheless, now they're prepared to, to negotiate because their pipeline routes and both Iran and Turkey consider themselves as regional powers. And justifiably, they are regional powers. So if you look at the situation in Venezuela, Venezuela now has the largest oil reserves in the world. A, a large part of them are tar sands, but they're, they're less costly than, than tar sands in Alberta. But that's very important. Venezuela has the largest oil reserves worldwide. No wonder that what's happening in Venezuela is happening. Yeah, I know the stakes are extremely high, extremely high. They're, they're much higher than they are, let's say, in, in Syria. But it's also the fact that uh, what, whatever happens in Venezuela is going to affect the entire continent. Uh, it, it's going to break down whatever trade and, and solidarity agreements existed between Latin American countries. It's going to affect immediately Bolivia, uh, Ecuador, and certainly also Cuba. Uh, and it has already, in, in a sense, uh, there's already been a breakdown in the, in the relations between, between Cuba and Venezuela. And that's something I witnessed when I was, when I was in Havana a couple of years back. Because, uh, well, to put it bluntly, uh, the same foundations which are funding the opposition in Venezuela uh, are also funding intellectuals in Cuba. I'm talking about the Hans Seidel Foundation, uh, which is linked up to the uh, Bavarian uh, Christian Democratic Party. Uh, it's more or less the right wing of Angela Merkel. Well, they, in 2012, were behind uh, Kaprilis Radonsky, who was running uh, against uh, Chavez. Chavez won those elections, but they were involved in funding the opposition candidate. That's the Hans Seidel Foundation. Now, it just so happens that the Hans Seidel Foundation is also uh, active in Cuba. And uh, the event that I went to which was a debate on transition, political transition, Cuba, etc., um, normalization, was funded by the Hans Seidel Foundation. And it just so happened that there was a session. There was a session of Venezuela, but there was not a single person from Venezuela who was invited, not a single intellectual. And this, this was a think tank and a research entity which was associated with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And then what did they do? They invited an Israeli guy who started comparing the Palestinians to Al-Qaeda. And uh, then they had people from Austria and, and the European Parliament who were discussing the issues pertaining to Ukraine and support of Maidan. And nobody in the audience of these Cuban researchers actually contested these various points of view. There was an Iranian there who did actually speak out, and there was myself. But there we are in socialist Cuba, and we have a, have a Zionist from Chatham House, Royal Institute of International Affairs, pretty mediocre as a scholar, 
who comes in and, and uh, starts talking about Syria and, and uh, accusing Bashar al-Assad of killing his own people and so on, uh, when in fact the Cuban leadership had actually taken a stance on Syria. Okay? Fidel Castro had taken a stance on Syria. So that those are the kinds of things which are, of course, relevant because if Cuba and Venezuela don't stick together, uh, they'll be decimated by, by Washington. Well, who sponsored this conference in Cuba? No, the, the, the conference in Cuba was under the auspices of uh, um, the Center for Research on uh, International Politics, so to speak. It, it was, it's one of the main research institutes which is attached to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And in fact, uh, it was under the auspices, really, of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs that this conference took place. Uh, well, I, I should say, uh, you know, it, you have a research institute which is independent of the government agencies, but it, it nonetheless advises the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and the, and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs finances it. And so they organized this conference. They, they got the funding from, from Hans Seidel. Now, Hans Seidel has a, has a very black history because they also supported the in, in the wake of the collapse of the Soviet Union, they were supporting the transition governments in, in Ukraine. They were also involved in Chile. You can look at the track record. I've written this up in an article. But the fact of the matter is that while the NED, the National Endowment for Democracy, cannot set foot in, in Cuba, the various European counterparts, particularly from Germany, they have offices there. And they are involved in the same mechanism of co-optation. And given the fact that Cuba has a dual currency system, any payment in, in a convertible currency uh, is, well, it's a goldmine for the people who are, who are receiving those honoraria. I'm speaking with economist and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show... The Broader Global Crisis. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. And what happened to me when I, when I was invited to this conference, I got a note from the foundation, the, the Hans Seidel Foundation, and they said, uh, we're contacting you to pay your expenses and to establish a, a, a contract and discuss honoraria. Okay? That's what happened. And I then contacted the organizers in Havana and said, uh, I don't need the support of the Hans Seidel Foundation. I will pay, be paying my own expenses. And I went, I went to that conference and paid my own expenses, uh, air travel. It created havoc because I, wasn't, I somehow didn't fit into the, to the lists that they had established and the hotel reservations which had been made by the German Foundation on their behalf. But that was a personal experience, but it also provided me with, a, with an understanding of what was going on in, in Cuba. I don't see a transition which will actually protect uh, the achievements of the Cuban Revolution. I see exactly the opposite. That's despite the fact that, you know, broadly the Cuban people are committed to, to the achievements of the Cuban Revolution. But at the same time, the mechanisms which have been set in place, dual currency system, 
um, and the funding of research by by foreign foundations, it doesn't really doesn't really look good. And uh, the situation, for instance, I met up with with colleagues from the universities, and uh, and this is I would say relatively recent. They said. Well, we make uh, our salary in, in U.S. dollars is less than $20 a month, okay? Now, the taxi driver will make $25 just in the ride from the airport to the hotel. And there it is. It's a monthly salary. Now, it's not to say that people are impoverished, uh, abysmally impoverished, because they still have the safety nets of the Cuban Revolution, which are, you know, the system of ration, of uh, essential commodities that they receive, uh, the housing which is provided to them and so on and so forth. But uh, very significant social divisions are, are occurring between those who are paid in local currency and those who are paid in convertible uh, currency. It's, it's not the U.S. dollar. It's called the cook, and it means essentially a convertible currency unit. Okay? So that's, that's the, the, the context in, in Cuba at the moment, uh, and um, I'm not very optimistic uh, as to the outcome. On the other hand, uh, what I, I sense in Venezuela is that certainly there's a regime, there's a sort of a regime change strategy which, which has certain features of what happened in Ukraine with Maidan. Uh, rooftop people shooting at demonstrators and killing them and so on. That that is certainly there. So that in effect, the the foreign policy um, consultants uh, on behalf of Washington are, are applying the same kinds of procedures that they applied uh, in in other countries. But then there's another dimension, which is reminiscent of the the last months of the Chilean popular unity government under Salvador Allende. Uh, I, well, I recall those events because I lived through them. I was there during the coup. And what happened is that there was a dual currency system. Okay? There were dollars, and then there were scudos, and then there was hyperinflation, and there was a problem of distribution of essential commodities which had been engineered by corporations, local businesses, with the support, most probably with the support of, of U.S. intelligence. Of course, there was Henry Kissinger as well. But, but the, this dual currency system ultimately, plus the, the collapse in the standard of living, which is attributable to the scarcity of commodities or, or massive inflation, which is beyond the control of the monetary authorities, that is what struck me. Uh, as bearing a similarity to the last months in Chile uh, leading up to, uh, to the coup on, on the 11th of September 1973. So that there's a process of destabilization of the, the monetary system on the one hand, and then, then there's also a, an issue of distribution of, of goods and services, uh, an impoverishment of, of, of the population, through the manipulation of markets and distribution. And then on the other hand, there's, you know, the, the regime change, manipulated protest movements with snipers on rooftops, killing people, 
and then blaming the government. I mean, this, this notion of blaming the government, we find it in several countries. We saw it in, in Ukraine, where the, the Maidan um, incidents were blamed on the government, which was deposed, or Yanukovych. And we see, of course, the whole narrative of blaming Bashar al-Assad of, for killing his own, own people. So that is the kind of, of, of discourse and narrative you'll get in the media without bearing in mind that, uh, first of all, one has to look a bit at the history. Uh, Venezuela was, a, was really a puppet regime up until Chavez. Okay? Juan Vicente Gomez uh, was the dictator from the, from the early period of, of, the, of the oil boom. Of course, then with several government changes, then you had Perez Jimenez, and then uh, subsequently then... Uh, the two major parties, Cope and Eco, came in, and that was in um, that was in the 60s. But um, today, Venezuela has the largest oil reserves in the world. Okay, that issue is never mentioned. It's admittedly a large part of those reserves are tar sands. The cost of developing them are, are much higher. But uh, the tar sands in Venezuela are more cost effective than those in Canada. But that makes certainly Venezuela is strategic. And the fact that the, the Western oil companies were, were penalized by, uh, by the Chavez government is something that they uh, are not going to forget very easily. And, and that's precisely why Chavez was in all likelihood assassinated. And that uh, was their plan eventually to assassinate the leader and then move into uh, a regime change scenario uh, characterized by uh, financial uh, destabilization uh, with exchange rates, uh, prices of essential commodities, coupled with uh, the covert forms of intervention, paid killers on the rooftops, uh, shooting at demonstrators, and so on and so forth. Infiltration into the armed forces as well. Infiltration into the armed forces because Chavez's uh, uh, essential uh, support, which strengthened his, his, uh, his government, was the fact that he had the support of the armed forces, uh, which is not always the case in, 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 uh, in Latin American countries. Well, how does a dual currency situation, you've mentioned this dual currency situation, both with regard to Cuba and Venezuela, how, how does that get started? It starts, um, I mean, it's been ongoing for quite a number of years. It didn't necessarily start, uh, you know, in the context of the, of the protest movement. In Venezuela, the, the black market has, has been there, and uh, people come to accept it, you know. Uh, I recall also that in Chile, uh, even there, there was a black market right from the outset of the popular unity government. And I think, in part, it's the inability of the, of the authorities to implement a coherent exchange rate policy. In countries like Venezuela, where the central bank is very much related to the commercial banking system, which is still controlled by uh, Venezuelan conglomerates, okay? There's a lot of money in, 
in, in Venezuela, owned by the elites and so on, so that the banking system is private. Now, there was a, there was a project of actually nationalizing the banks, but the thing is you don't really have within in Venezuela people within the central bank who are capable or willing to actually resolve this issue of dual currency. Uh, I mean, the, the black market, the dollar versus, the, you know, the Bolivar in, in the case of Venezuela. And, and there's a lot of corruption which is, surrounds that, that relationship, okay? And, and now we have a situation where they import commodities from the world market and then they're supposed to be sold in local currency at, at government prices and uh, they never reach the points of distribution at government prices. They're immediately sent off and sold on the black market because the, the price between, let's say you can buy certain essential commodities at the government price in local currency, but uh, you can also buy them at ridiculously high prices in local currency in the free market um, so that those prices are dollarized, okay? And people who have dollars, of course, are, are, are very well-to-do, and people who don't uh, have to deal with very exceedingly low salaries. So that essentially what, what has happened in, in, uh, in Venezuela is that people have been impoverished through, through this process of financial manipulation, uh, which I think is instrumented both by actors within the country as well as as the integration of Venezuela's banking system into the into the world financial system, and uh, and the impacts are devastating. Now, one of course, one area uh, which was very crucial in Venezuela was also the the manipulation of the price of crude oil on the international commodity markets. We know that that that, that took place. These were engineered actions in the commodity markets, in the energy markets, to push the price down. After having pushed it up to, to more than uh, 100 and something, it, then it was push, pushed down, and in many regards it was pushed down below the cost of, of uh, production of, of oil in the tar sands, for instance. And Canada was also heavily affected by this. But that movement in the oil price was very much detrimental to Venezuela, and it was engineered, and it was intended. Uh, it went against Venezuela. It, well, of course, it went against all major oil producers, but it was essentially targeted against, against Venezuela, and it was also targeted against uh, Iran and, and Russia. Michel Chosodovsky, thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs> Delighted to have this discussion. I've been speaking with Michelle Chosodovsky. Today's show has been The Broader Global Crisis. Michelle Chosodovsky is the founder, director, and editor of the Center for Research on Globalization, based in Montreal, Quebec. The global research website, globalresearch.ca, publishes news articles, commentary, background research, and analysis. Michelle Chosodovsky is the author of 11 books, including The Globalization of Poverty and the New World Order. 
War and Globalization, The Truth Behind September 11th, America's War on Terrorism, The Globalization of War, and America's Long War Against Humanity. Visit globalresearch.ca. That's globalresearch.ca. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yara Mako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GNB Radio. You dig me? You got-